<laughs> but that was a lot of fun, and he's a good brother. He's, um, he and his wife will be out in the foyer afterwards, and they have albums and information on Calvary Ranch and things like that, so it's great to have them here. Let's turn in our Bibles now to chapter 1 of the book of James. As we're continuing, and this morning looking at the second half of James chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, or to refresh your memory, the first part of the book of James, James begins to deal with what happens when you're tested. And he gives us the insight that those situations that cause us to react passionately, we sometimes consider them to be temptations. But he said, that temptation doesn't come from God. What happens is that test really is generated from inside you. There's something inside you that needs to be dealt with. And so as a gift from God, God puts you in a situation whereby you will either respond in a way that's correct or you'll respond in a way that's incorrect. And when you respond wrongfully and, and your passions flare up, then God is showing you things about yourself. And if you go to him and ask for wisdom, he'll be able to help you to discover insights about yourself and to help you to become a better person. God's desire is to use those tests to make you grow up, to make you more mature. Now, usually when you don't react the right way, the way that you can know that you've been tested and you just failed um, is that you generally get mad. And so he now goes in as he continues in this discussion, he begins with verse 19 to deal with this problem of anger. And so let's look first of all at verses 19 and 20, James chapter 1. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a pretty radical statement. That when you're talking about God and what he wants to do in our lives, anger is exactly the opposite of what God wants to do. And so he exhorts them on the basis of what he's already been saying. You need to listen more, (laughs) say less, and be slow in that burning, that building of passion, in that emotional reaction to what's going on that leads to you know, that anger that is something that he says, you can't do what God wants you to do if you're blowing your stack. Because, as he says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now that is such a basic, fundamental principle of life that it's something that I hope you don't miss in all of this discussion. Anger is always an indication that you are not reacting the way God wants you to. Anger, though, is also a great warning light, a great idiot light, to let you know that you've been in a test and you're on the verge of failing that test. That there's a better way. Whenever something happens that makes you mad... God is trying to do something good in your life. Now, it may be that you're mad because somebody did something horrible, but even that, it's a gift from God, as we saw last week, and God is saying, hey, I see your pulse racing, I see you're 
nostrils beginning to flare, a test is here. Now, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to react to it? And to react in anger is absolutely the wrong way to do it. And godliness cannot be accompanied by anger. You remember Moses, who was so faithful in leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, across the wilderness, and now they were about ready to go into the promised land. And God had told him, I want you to give the people water. And in the past, he had struck the rock, which was a picture of Jesus being struck. But now it was a picture of just asking him for forgiveness because he had already been struck. And so he said, Moses, speak to the rock and water will come forth. But instead, Moses was angry with the people. And he talked to the people and said, God and I are fed up with you people. And he struck the rock. And at that moment, God let Moses know, you have just blown it big time. You misrepresented me. You made people think that I'm mad at them. And I'm not mad at them. I love them. I want to show grace and mercy to them. But you represented me as being angry. And as a result, you will never go into the promised land. You, you're going to die without entering into the land. It's, you led them all this way, but sorry, your anger has disqualified you from taking them in to where I want them to go. And this is something that's throughout the scriptures. Proverbs, that great book of incredible wisdom, a book that I try to read every day. Um, I'll just read a couple of Proverbs to you. Um, in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 17, he says, a quick-tempered man, and by the way, these would apply to women too, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. You get mad, you do stupid things, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. And then over in uh, the same chapter in verse 28, he says, in a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people, is, oh no, verse 29, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. And a couple pages more over in chapter 16, he, uh, Proverbs 16 and verse 32 says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then in Proverbs 19, verse 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. So clearly you get the idea, wow, this is a big deal. This is something that to get angry means you flunk the test, and it's a test that was brought to you by God specifically to bring out your passion so that you can repent, so that you can ask God to work in your life. It, it identifies what makes you mad, identifies areas of weakness in your life that God wants to deal with. He doesn't just want to make you feel bad, not at all. He wants you to be excited and to rejoice when the test comes because you can go, oh, there's another chance for me to grow. Here's another opportunity for me. But again, as he lays down here, if you allow wrath to be your response, godliness is never going to happen. You will prevent God from doing that which he's intending to do in your life, and you'll miss all those gifts that God wants to send you if you don't get a handle on this. Now in the rest of the chapter, as we, as we go through it, 
you'll see that he begins to make some specific statements and recommendations that is for all of us who have not yet had complete victory over anger, which is probably most of us. And some very practical things that James would say, if you're having a problem with anger management, check this out. Look at this. Let God minister to you in these ways. And so, beginning with verse 21, he says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness, just the dirt, the grime that you pick up through the week, and the overflow of wickedness, all the gross stuff that spills over on you, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So there's a rejection of the garbage, and the way you reject the garbage is to go to the word of God. Earlier in the chapter, we saw that he says, Pray for wisdom so that God will help you to see what it is that he wants to do in your life through this testing situation. But now he says, you need a meek attitude, an attitude of humility, and then to approach the word of God. Because as he says, and I I love that, he says, he calls it the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. See, the problem with all of us is that when we go through life, All kinds of stuff is planted in us. We experience, and believe me, there there are a million different reasons to be mad in this world if you're looking for them. I mean, the frustrations are everywhere. And yet, God's word is able to be implanted in us, and that implies that it takes time for this process to develop. But as we humbly allow the word of God to soak into our lives, more and more we will begin to see the fruit that comes out of planting and then ultimately reaping. And so he says, go to the Word and in humility allow God's Word to speak to you. Now why is the meekness necessary? Because my natural way of looking at the Bible is to look at what it says so that I can hammer people with it. It's amazing. Now, when I read the Bible, I see all kinds of things that people I know need to deal with. And I I typically often don't see the things that, that affect me and touch me in the greatest way. And so the meekness allows me to say, okay, there's a bunch of stuff I'm mad about. There's a lot of things that are working me up, that are causing me to feel like, you know, joining Santos in the cardiac unit. But, God, what is there that you want to tell me? Because I can't change anybody else. But, boy, if I'm going to go through a test, I want to come out of it stronger. I want to come out of it more mature than I was before. I can't change you and your problems, but I have a great responsibility to accept the truth about my own. And so that's the kind of going to the Word that James is talking about. He's saying, humble yourself enough to say, okay, I am in a test. Now, what is it that God's trying to teach me about me? What is it that he wants to show me? And so it's this attitude of coming and allowing him to plant the word into our lives. But then he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For self-deception is 
very common. That's why even in this passage, like three times over in verse 16, he said, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. As he comes down to the end in verse 26, he talks about people fooling themselves, deceiving their own hearts. <clears throat> and here are the ideas. You can read the Bible and you can still be fooled. See, because the deception is that somehow Christianity is all about learning stuff. It's all about having the right views and the right opinions. It's all about building up a solid theology and, and getting insights into the world and being able to argue with people your position very vehemently. But the truth is the Bible is there to change me and to change you. And so, he says, you're fooling yourself if you read it, but you don't do it. There are a lot of people who have the right views, but their lives haven't been transformed because they haven't taken that step to actually obeying the Word of God. And as somebody has said, and it's a very obvious statement, but very profound too, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you do. If there's something in the Bible you don't do, you don't really believe it when it comes right down to it. And so he says, approach the Word in humility and ask God to show you what you're supposed to do, but at the same time, say, and God, I am intending to do things differently. I want to obey you. And this is important to get straightened out even before you read the Word. Because if you read the Word to hear kind of God's perspective on things, but you're not really submitting your life to say, I'm willing to make changes, you're holding something back in your life, it's a waste of effort to hear what he has to say if you're not really going to do it. I, I talk to people in counseling often about this. You know, they want to know God's will, and I say, well, first you better decide, will you do it if he tells you what it is? And often people will confess that, well, there are certain things that I'll do, but there are some things that I just won't do. And I say, you're never really going to hear from God. People are struggling in a marriage and they've already decided to bail, for instance. And sometimes that's just the way it's going to go down. People's hearts are hard and sometimes a marriage doesn't work. But I always want to tell people, you know what? Are you willing to stay if God tells you to? Because when you're going through a struggle, any kind of struggle, the first thing to do is to say, God, I'll do anything. And that means, okay, God, if you tell me to do this, I'll do it. If you tell me to do that, I'll do it. I'm ready to obey you. I'm ready to do what you say. And, you know, there are people who are afraid to tell God that they'll do anything. Because they're afraid, if I really tell God I'll do anything, I'm afraid he's going to make me go to a jungle and eat worms. And so, you know, and I won't do that. I don't care what God tells me, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, there are people who will say, don't worry about that. God's not going to make you go eat worms in the jungle. But I would say to that, if God wanted you, if he saw that it was your best to go to a jungle and eat worms, would you just not do it? I mean, is it, are there certain things that you've excluded or taken off the table and said, God, you can't be the Lord of these things because if there are things like that, now it just so happens that God is very gracious and he always gives us the desires of our heart and so it's always surprising how what a blessing it is to, that he can make you like worms if that's your, if that's your next meal. But, 
But at first, if we don't say, God, I'll do what you tell me to do, then we're fooling ourselves. It's absolute self-deception to pretend like we are followers of Jesus, to pretend like he is our Lord if there are some things that we're not willing to do. And so James says it's not enough to hear. And, it, and although that's where it starts, God, please give me your wisdom. I look in his word. He speaks to me about myself, but make sure that you're willing to follow through and make changes in your life. Now, this isn't saying that you're perfect. This isn't saying that as soon as God convicts you of a sin that you never do it again. But it's the idea that your intention and your efforts, and there's a pattern that's showing, wow, you're actually making some changes in your life as a result of what God has spoken to you. And if you can't do that, then the other option is you can get really mad. And you can read the Bible, and it can make you even madder if you're not willing to submit yourself to it and to obey it. You get mad at yourself, you get mad at everyone else, and that's when we find verses and go, this is a good one to club you know, my wife over the head with, or you know, this is, boy, there are people at my work that need this. And I, you know, I hate to knock that kind of mentality because it's probably what's responsible for most of the CDs that we sell. It's like, I'm going to give this to that person. But, <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, until you understand, it's about you. It's about God working in your life. And, you know, whatever somebody else has done to you, hey, there's no doubt there are a hundred excuses every day, good excuses, why I should be mad. And people who are at fault, but if I'm looking at them, then I'm deciding who's more at fault. And it gets into more of a battle because it's like, well, you said this, well, you said this, you did that, you did, and, you know, well, he cut me off on the road, so of course I you know, made a gesture or, you know. And so justifying what I'm doing instead of saying, I wonder why it bugs me so much that somebody cut me off. Did I really think my life was in danger? Or is it that big of a deal that somebody else is 20 feet ahead of me on the road? That I may actually get somewhere 20 seconds later. Is that bugging me? Is, is that what's got me worked up? Wow, I've got a weird perspective. But see, to say, God, when you speak to me, I will make changes. I want to be a doer. That's an important thing. If you won't obey God when he speaks, eventually he's just going to quit speaking. And he will leave you to flunk every test that comes into your life. Now, James goes on and talking about this self-deception, and he says in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. He says, if you just like, okay, God speak to me, and God speaks, and then you don't go change anything about your life. You don't actually do what he's telling you to do. You're like somebody that looks in a mirror and you walk away and go, what did I look like? Who was that guy? Now, I trust me, I understand that often when I look in the mirror, I walk away and try to forget. But, <laughs> but it's the idea of, are you going to follow through? Are you going to be like a person who doesn't even understand what a mirror is all about? Uh, J. Vernon McGee in his 
message on, the, on James chapter 1 told the funny story about a, a guy in Tennessee, lived way up in the woods, very back, backwards. Sorry if you're from Tennessee, and I understand it's not like that that much anymore. But this guy was out hiking in the woods, and he found an old campsite where somebody had been camping, and they had left hanging on a tree a little mirror that they were using while they were camping. Well, this old guy had never seen a mirror before, didn't know what it was. So he got the mirror, and he wiped it off, and he looked in it, and he said, I didn't know my pappy had his picture taken before he died. And so then he was like, I'm going to take that home with me. He took it home, and, and he didn't want to show it to anybody. He hid it in his drawer, and his wife saw him you know, hiding this thing, and she didn't know what a mirror was either. And so she went and pulled it out and looked in it, and she said, so that's a picture of the old hag he's been messing around with. <laughs> so... <laughs> but James is saying that's the way it is when we're like okay God speak to me but I'm not going to do it I'm not going to follow through now he and, and really a lot of this is, is about as he goes on in the next couple of verses this is a critical question and it's all about knowing who you are being honest with yourself being willing to look into the spiritual mirror and that works in both ways, because not only do we need to look at what God says so that we can see what's wrong about us, but we also need to look at what God says so that we can see who we are in Christ. And so he goes on and he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that is, the one who looks into the word of God and sees it as being that which sets me free, that law of grace, that law that says you can be forgiven if you just ask. And when you see how free he wants you to be, and you look in that and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And I think for us to have victory over our emotions to have victory over those outbursts, to, to not be subject to that, that, that ridiculous temper tantrum and that, and that thing that just is deteriorating our health by being upset all the time. So much of it has to do with knowing who we are in Christ and that he has set us free and that he has taken care of things. We get upset because we don't really think God is doing his job. But when we look in the perfect law of liberty and realize he's taken care of us, he's forgiven us, he's blessed us, we are men and women who are children of the king, we are princes and princesses of the king of kings and the lord of lords, and that ought to have an effect on how we act because of who we represent. There are certain things that when you get to a certain position, you just can't Act the way that you used to. If you are a person that works in a, in a store and uh, your job is to take complaints, well, that's your job. So you can't, you know, when somebody comes and says, you know, I, was just, I had to wait a long time in the line and your, the products aren't up to par and this store has really gone downhill, your job is not to go, well, tell me about it, but look at you. Look, you're, you're, you're 30 pounds overweight. You're, you're obviously not taking care of yourself. I bet you're a loser in every way possible. I, 
But no, no, your job is to listen to people and to take it and to take a higher road. Police officers are in this kind of position. And some of them do it better than others. But if you went out with police officers, as I do um, periodically, you'd be amazed at how much abuse they take. And they just sit there and are generally pretty respectful back to people because they understand, I'm a cop. I, this is a part of my job. And I've watched cops be, you know, people say horrible things to them, spit at them and things like that. And they don't just respond back and go, I'm bigger than you and I have a gun. You're, you've had it. <laughs> now, there are some cops who, who verge on that a little bit. But see, the one thing that you have to understand, well, it's really funny, by the way, when someone files a complaint against a cop, they bring them in and the people tell their story. And I, I, all I said to them was, but sir, I don't think I was actually you know, going over the speed limit. He said, listen, you idiot. You're da, da, da. And they tell their whole story. And then they say, oh, okay, great. Because it was all on videotape and it was all recorded. So let's see the story. Let's see what had happened. And then generally at that point, they go, oh, never mind. I don't care. You guys don't care anyway. But when you see how it really went down, it's... It's amazing how different it is. And you see officers just really bending over backwards to try to be kind, not because they're such good guys, but because they know it's being recorded. They, they <laughs> but, but they understand, too, that this is my job to soak up some abuse. And there's, when someone's a leader of any type, if you're the, the boss at a company, you have greater responsibilities than somebody who just hired on to work in the mailroom. And you conduct yourself in a certain way as a result of that. And so what James is saying is, when you really understand what God has done for you, and you see who you are in Him, it's going to have a real effect on how you relate to others, how you represent the Lord that you claim that you serve. It has to make a difference. And the Word of God not only convicts us of those areas in which we fail, but the Word of God elevates us in that liberty that's in Christ, and we realize how much is riding on how we treat people. I mean, do you understand that when you get mad at someone, it could theoretically send them to hell for eternity? Do you understand that some people will, if they know you're a Christian and you blow up at them, they may never want to hear anything about Christianity again, especially if you're in leadership. Yeah, I met a guy and he just blah, 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 and so I'm, no way am I going to have anything to do with church. People, are, It's not fair. People are looking for excuses. But the whole thing is, we don't want to give them that ammunition that they're going to shoot us with. And so we have to go to his word and allow him to speak to us of how we are to grow and change, but also to be reminded of who we are. Because anyone who is living on an overflow of passion, as he describes it earlier in the chapter, anyone who does that has a serious identity crisis. And the word of God is the ideal way to deal with an identity crisis and to let us know who we are in Christ. And so he says, <clears throat> that's something that you need to be looking in the mirror, but you also need to be looking at what God has done for us and, and how he loves us and, and to what extent has he elevated us. And when you do that, you'll be blessed. 
And now in verse 26, he says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, which is primarily where anger comes out, and later in chapter 3 he's going to deal with the tongue a whole lot, but if you think you're religious and you don't control your tongue, you deceive your own heart, and this one's religion is useless. That's pretty serious. For those of us who say, wow, God has done a work in our lives, and other people look at us and say, oh, yeah, aren't you kind of religious? I mean, you go to church, and you, know, you carry a Bible, and you have Christian jewelry on, and that kind of celebrate the holidays, all about Jesus. And he says, if you think that you're religious, but you can't even control those things that come out of your mouth, he said, that religion's worthless. The only reason religion is worth anything is if it changes us. Religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ is just not about us having the right opinion. It's not about us believing the right things. It's about changing our lives so that we stop killing ourselves and we stop killing each other and destroying all that for which Jesus died. And so if that's the case, he says, do not even pretend that you're some kind of religious person. If, if you're claiming to be a Christian and you can't control that anger and bitterness that comes out of your mouth, keep your mouth shut about being a Christian. You know, at least be the type of person where you're always blowing your stack and people are praying for you that you'll get saved. That would be way better than if they're being driven away from Jesus Christ because of what you're doing. It's, it's useless, it's worthless. That's a scary statement to me, just like 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have all faith and understand all prophecies, I can move mountains, I give my body to be burned, I give everything I have to the poor, and if I don't have love, it's nothing. It's a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. I'm playing a game, I'm self-deceived, my life is meaningless without that love. And in the same way, what could be more contrary to love than this uncontrolled garbage that we can spew out of our mouths blowing up? And really, every time you get mad and say something, what you should really be saying is, I just failed a test. It should just, a big F should show up on your face because that's what it means. That's what happened. The Lord put you in a difficult situation to give you an opportunity to pass the test, and you blew up and failed the test. And he wants you to pass the test because it's going to make you a better person. And yeah, every day there are going to be frustrations. Every day there are going to be opportunities. You'll pass some. You'll fail some. But the idea is, are you willing to grow? Do you want to see a difference in your life? Because eventually, you will absolutely be set aside and put on the shelf if you don't allow yourself to understand the nature of tests, the nature of what it means to pass, and the nature that your volume says, I fail. And then finally, he says, pure and undefiled religion, speaking of religion, before God and the Father, the only place it really matters, is this to visit orphans and widows 
in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, and he's already said, let's review. He said, you want to deal with this anger problem in your life. Anger management looks like this. Humble yourself and go to the Word and see what it tells you. Then do what the Word tells you. And then bring yourself to a place where you see what the Word says about who you are and how you should live in light of that. And then, you know, as he says, get yourself involved in helping people who are helpless. In this case, he uses the example of widows and orphans. Start to serve. If you're, if you're having a problem controlling your reactions, it's, it's because you haven't humbled yourself. Pride is the reason why this happens. And serving people who can't help themselves is just a huge opportunity for you to understand two things. Number one, you'll see your own pride at work because there are certain things you don't want to do, but they need to be done. There are certain people that aren't pleasant to be around, but you need to be around them. And then secondly, when you discover how appreciated you are and when you, how blessed and privileged that you are as you help people who have less than you are, changes your entire perspective. You can talk to anyone who, who goes out on a short-term missions trip and you see how it changes the whole way we look at our lives here. And to be able to bless people and make a difference in their lives in a profound way is just powerfully transforming. All of a sudden, my priorities change. When I have been over and, and ministered to little kids who were, you know, they're in the orphanage because all, their parents all died of AIDS, and the only life for them is either child prostitution or somebody took them in in an orphanage. And then, like in the one... Um, place that we support where these are kids who were kidnapped put into child prostitution and now they're sent to the home and you can tell them about Jesus you know when you see that when you understand that beauty or when you see the power of providing water for a village that doesn't have water how much of the stuff that really bugs you here is really going to seem like it's that important when you go down with us to the rescue mission and, and you see people who are living on the streets and, don't, and they're so grateful to get anything at all, then, you know, really, is that scratching your car that big of a deal? You know, when you go with people when they've lost a loved one and you're getting really frustrated because of the people in your life and you realize what it's like to lose people in your life, changes your perspective. And so James says, readjust your perspective by getting involved serving in some way. And personally, I believe that serving people who are underprivileged is one of the best ways to deal with anger problems that you have. Yes, you need to read the Word. Yes, you need to let it convict you in humility. Yes, you certainly need to see what the Word says about you and be elevated to that position. But finally, again, make yourself, you know, to be a hearer of the Word and a doer, do something. Just do something. And if you're looking for someone to do it for, find someone that can't do it for themselves. And just reach out to them a little bit, even anonymously. And just bless them. And he says, you do that and you'll be blessed too. 
Now, in this whole anger management thing, I want to call your attention back up to verses 19 and 20 again one more time. Because I think, really, verse 19 summarizes. If you remember verse 19, the other stuff will only support what verse 19 says. And let me paraphrase verse 19. Well, first I'll read it to you. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, here's that verse 19 in the Dave Rolf simplified version. Shut up, (laughs) calm down, (laughs) and listen. And when we do that, God will work through us, and then we will begin to welcome the tests that happen. Because when we feel ourselves reacting in a way that he says is, doesn't work, then we can go, okay, great, this is my test. This is about me. Okay, God, what do you want me to show you? What do you want to show me? What do you want to say to me? How do you want me to take action? Who can I help? And that is... An amazing, that's what leads to godliness, and really that's what our religion is all about. A lot of people don't like the term religion because so much in the name of religion is just ritual and things like that, but I, because of James chapter 1 here, I like the word religion. But if somebody, if somebody says that I'm religious, I hope they don't say it because I have a whole different vocabulary and I sound really holy and I... And I Um, act real austere. But when it comes to true religion, the fact that when I read the Word, it makes me do certain things that I wouldn't do otherwise and want to help people who need help the most, then bring it on. I, I I would love being accused of being religious. And I hope you would too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. So powerful and so practical at the same time. And God... Help each of us to look at our own hearts, to to see where we need to work, to see what we need to do, but to see who we are in Christ. So Lord, help us to put into practice what you're speaking to us from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.